Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. I am Mel Cranenberg. This weekend, the Wheeler Centre is hosting Broadside, two days of, quote, an unapologetically feminist agenda, hosting local and international guests, including Zadie Smith, Monica Lewinsky, Gia Tolentino, Ariel Levy, Helen Garner and Ruby Hamad, to name but a few. They also include novelist and short story writer Curtis Sittenfeld, who has become a particularly noted for her Austin-esque sharpness and a reimagining of Pride and Prejudice in her novel Eligible, and a fictional portrayal of a character based loosely on the life of Laura Bush in her novel American Wife. She now has an addictively readable and very insightful short story collection, You Think It, I'll Say It. And she joins me later in the hour to talk about her new book and the craft behind her prose. But very soon, Lo-Fi High Art and Zines exhibition opened at Toot Art Space in St Kilda last weekend. And curator Jade Walsh will soon be on the line to talk about the exhibition and the role zines continue to play in storytelling art and culture. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Lo-Fi High Art and Zine Exhibition opened at Toot Art Space in St Kilda last weekend. And joining me now to talk about the exhibition and the lore the lo-fi art and craft of zines continues to exert is curator Jade Walsh. Jade, welcome to Backstory. Hi Mel, thanks. Good to be here. Now, I am endlessly fascinated by the fact that zines never seem to really lose their kind of captivating qualities for new and emerging artists, as well as established artists. What do you think is the main kind of appeal of the zine form? Well, I think it's immediately the the sense of freedom, I think, um, that is just, you know, I know myself as a... I started as a frustrated graphic designer just wanting to have freedom of speech, content, design, layout. Um, Yeah, and I I just see that so often that um, people are just wanting to express themselves freely without waiting in line for publishers to okay it or anything like that. It's just a real sense of you can do it now, you can do it in your way, bang. Now, look, it's, it seems as though uh, Triple R listeners would probably be familiar with the zine form, but but how would you describe zines to someone who uh, has never <laughs> encountered one before? Yes, I've, got, I've been asked that a lot since I've been running Toot and I'm trying to get good, good at <laughs> describing it. But I guess essentially it's an independent publication, usually photocopied and in small runs, um, yeah, but the, uh, the the epitome of it is that it can be made by anyone. I always say a zine can anyone can make a zine. Your mum can make a zine. I've made my mum make a zine, um, and you can make it about anything. So again, it's it's really a lack. Uh, there's no censorship. So that's a zine. 
It's sort of a funny thing because I am old enough to be of that era where it was kind of our main sort of underground way of, you know, I guess communicating with one another, especially about the sort of music scene that we were into and things like that. Is that still kind of a big lure? Because obviously now with, you know, like the incredible sort of array of communication tools that we have at our disposal Mm. there's obviously other ways for people to kind of create underground cultures why zines why this print medium um and that's a great word i think underground is, is is exactly what it is and it's also alternative i think it's it's just a way it's another way to to do something you know it's not commercial it's not that glossy magazine it's it's something else and it's the alternative underground and it's still going strong like you don't zines aren't digital that loses its appeal um you know sticky institute is just is such a delight it's full of all these amazing zines and people are loving it you know i think we can't get enough so it's happening it's still there it's and people want to make one they want to also read them they want to get their hands on it as perhaps it's yeah the symbol of alternative underground culture that's yeah still strong if you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and I'm talking to Jade Walsh, who is the curator of Lo-Fi High and a zine exhibition that is happening at Toot Art Space in St Kilda. Can you tell us a little bit about the exhibition itself and what people can expect to see there? Sure, yeah. It's an exhibition of eight artists who work in diverse media who also make a zine. Um, so it's literally... When you, when you come to the show, you'll literally see the artist's visual art um, alongside their zine or publication hanging next to it on a nice little lo-fi piece of elastic. Um, so it's, it's, it pretty much is what it says. It's, it's art and zines. Um, but we've got, um, got three video works, some textile works, painting and some drawing. So it's a nice mix of media, um, but of course plenty of zines alongside I'm sort of interested in where zines are going when it comes to, you know, also adapting that sort of photocopy medium for screen. And I know obviously Issue is a a kind of zine platform that seems to be something that is appealing to people. Do you think, I mean, we've just obviously discussed the the origins of zines and the fact that they were very much photocopied sort of lo-fi craziness that just didn't have the slickness of a modern publication. Where does mm. something like issues sit in all of that? Sorry, can you repeat that? So where does something like a sort of screen-based version sit within right. all of that? The video. Um, we do have a video piece, which is a beautiful piece by a New York artist who I've always admired called Amy Silman. And her work is, is really loose, rough, um, beautiful drawings that morph into each other. And I think that is a beautiful way of the zine, keeping that rough, raw quality that's actually working on the, on the screen because I, I wouldn't have thought it would. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very um, analogue myself, love the, um, keeping it hands-on. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit dubious of how it does translate into the screen, but it, we, we do have a work that work, does work really beautifully. So I guess if there is an ethos to it, it's really about playing with the medium rather than sort of achieving an end, that sort of, you know, not mm. work in progress or almost brain dump idea of it. Is that kind of where you come from when you're when you're sort of curating something like this? Um, oh, do you mean work in progress like with exploring visual art and zines together? Or? When you're sort of looking at the zine form itself, what are the yeah. sort of things that you look for in particular? Um, well, I think... Uh, what we've got at Toot is a be- really 
quite a diverse range of zines and again I've come from a graphic design background so my the zines I've made personally and collected have always had a bit of a well not a slickness but a design sense um, but always handmade um, but I, I do I really do love the your classic you know coming from the fanzine such you know your basic totally lo-fi photocopy black and white no color um, just with you know collage that classic don't care what you know whether it's lining up it's all over the place but that's the beautiful beautiful appeal of those zines so we've got a nice mix of a lot of different kinds of zines which i think is really lovely for people to see that it's not just your rough photocopied stuff you've got some beautiful stocks and papers printed hand screen printed covers things like that so they all come together now, um, in our space yeah, you can really imagine as someone who hosts a book show that I'm a little bit of a nerd when it comes to things like oh. collecting the written form. But I can honestly <laughs> say that, that one of the things that I've kept the longest or some of the things that I've kept the longest more than, say, old magazines that I loved or, you know, even particular books have been zines because there's that, mm, wow. you know, well, they're, they're just, you know, there's they're these artefacts that are really one-offs or, you know, only yeah. a few of them have been made. So they have that That's preciousness. So to them. There, I like a piece of art. I've always thought that too. I've always believed that. But it's it's well, it's you can feel the the hand, the hand of the artist because the zine maker has been there. It's, sometimes is they they sign it if they're artists or, but um yeah, it's definitely they're they're an art form. That's what I tell people too. It's you know I present them in the space on their shelf as if they're a little artwork on, unto themselves. Because yeah, I agree that they're, they're just beautiful to touch and get your hands on. Now, uh, for those who haven't visited Toot Art Space, can you uh, explain a little bit about what it is and where it is uh, so that people can come and see this event? Yeah, sure. It's um, So we're, we're, we're fairly new-ish. We've, well, it's, it's been a year and a half, and we're nestled into a little side street in St Kilda um, between Carlisle and Ackland Street um, called Irwell Street. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's in St Kilda. It's worth a visit, and we've got Linden up the road, um, but there's not, you know, not a lot of spaces in in the south. But we're kind of proud to be one of one of few, and especially with our zine zine shelf and zine collection in the front space. That's really great. And Jade yeah. Walsh, thank you so much for coming on Backstory today to talk about all things zines and uh, this wonderful exhibition. Good luck with the rest of the show. Thank you. How much longer is it going to be running for? Just so people know. Sure, it runs until November seventeenth. We've got a couple more weekends left. That's great. Thank you so much, Jade. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform. Now, the first female presidential candidate ponders her complicated relationship and grudging respect for a journalist who has followed her career for years. And a woman explores her growing obsession with a married friend and the flirty game that has come to mean so much to her. You think it, I'll say it. These addictively readable tableaus at once poke at politics and society and show a great sensitivity at building characters that are both empathetic and believably flawed. And they're all part of a new short story collection by US-based writer Curtis Sittenfeld, who joins me in the studio now. Curtis, welcome to back story. Thank you. Uh, I very much enjoyed your collection of short stories as I have been discussing with you off air. I 
didn't really want it to end, but I found the book was over all too quickly because you write in this amazingly readable style. And I really want to interrogate that. How do you do this? How do you create, (laughs) just tell me everything. How do you create these characters that feel like you know them at the same time you kind of, you know, know them maybe more than the people you actually know? What are you doing? Um, I, that's such a that's such a flattering, open ended question. Uh, thank you so much for for liking them. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I I do think that writing very readable fiction is a goal of mine. I think it's not necessarily a goal of every writer, and you know, depending on you know, some people I think almost think that being a little bit inscrutable can be a badge of honor and and there's there's room for all kinds of writing and writers out there so it's I'm not trying to disparage that but but I I like like I think something I try to do is if you had a good friend say this crazy thing happened to me in a weird way I try to write the way I would want someone to tell me a story so it's kind of like get to the action pretty quickly and then be super detailed and especially the more juicy or embarrassing the more detailed you know like you put in the stuff you'd really want to know about something that happened to someone in real life or the way somebody would really feel about it well you've certainly achieved that and and it was and it has that kind of element where you're you feel like you're looking at something that is that is quite simple but then you realize it's just it's filled with this bucket of meaning Uh, and I think that's where the kind of interesting quality comes in you talk about sort of starting from the action but that must involve quite a lot of writing before you get to this style that feels I hate to say breezy but it sort of does in terms of you know the the effortlessness with which uh you know I guess you you can read it, uh, but you have that layered meaning there. What are you doing there? Have you sort of (laughs) written quite a lot and then just cut it all back? I'm just sort of really trying to get at the craft behind this sort of Yeah, so it varies from story to story where I think that there are stories that I write pretty quickly. That's not the case for most of them. And and in many... um, sort of instances of writing, I would say I write something and I'm not happy with how it turns out and I revise it a lot. Uh, and so so I wouldn't necessarily say that there's a, a correlation between how easily something reads in its final draft and how easily I wrote it. But, you know, because it it's, could be like that there's some scene that I hope it flows pretty well. And maybe maybe it came out that way in the first draft and maybe it came out that way on the 17th draft. Uh, I I want to mention the, the elephant in the room of the kind of writing, uh, you know, political figures that are in in some cases living political figures uh, women uh, and uh, their kind of unconscious lives um, that you know we kind of feel like we know them already and you're sort of trying to to burrow into that and and read what's what's going on behind that but before I do you are doing this other kind of uh, thing in your collection in a couple of stories in in quite a few stories actually where you're sort of playing with perspectives uh, you know where people one person has sort of invested all this meaning in someone's actions that actually you can sort of see from a faulty narrator point of view that they're sort of incredibly wrong mm-hmm. <laughs> about it and then you sort of allow that to be whisked away why are you so interested in this particular form of, of obsession and you know the kind of I guess confusion of meaning behind it well I had a realization just a few years ago 
that I, for some reason, the combination of writing about characters who are simultaneously intelligent and incorrect in their view of their own lives is a very interesting combination to me. It's much more interesting than a character who's not intelligent and also incorrect about their lives or a character who's intelligent and correct about their lives. Like somehow the magic combination is because I think I think that's something that's possible in life. Like it's like I you know, I feel like I know a lot of smart people. Maybe a different way to put it is I feel like there's a sort of pretense kind of in in media or in pop culture, and especially in terms of like, you know, wellness or like tracking how many steps we take, that we're all essentially rational creatures who are just kind of working our way towards being the best version of ourselves. And I think that's nonsense. Like, I think that, that to be human is to, to kind of act irrationally very frequently. And even and especially I'm 44 now, like I would say my own behavior. I mean, I think I'm I'm a responsible member of society, I would say my own behavior is not more rational, or more comprehensible to me, the older I get, like, it's, it's not as if I'm evolving into like, the ideal specimen of, of middle aged womanhood. And um, so I think that's, that's like a truth about how people are. And I think I think fiction can be this amazing opportunity to be honest about like, okay, this is what we pretend on social media. This is what we sometimes might pretend if we're being interviewed, you know, for a magazine article, but then this is what we're secretly doing. <laughs> now, I do want to address that uh, elephant in the room of the, uh, you know, writing political figures in a fictional sense. You've written a novel, um, American Wife, that is loosely based on Laura Bush's life. And the opening story uh, to You Think It, I'll Say It, is very clearly based on Hillary Clinton. Uh, I, I kind of love that story because you give her this incredibly wry internal sort of monologue. Um, and it's a wonderful kind of story because it really looks at her relationship with a journalist who's been following her around through her com- campaign. So they're both incredibly familiar with one another, but there's also a lot of kind of presumptuousness about what you know, what this relationship means for the both of them that's coming from the character you've created. Firstly, where did this particular story come from and why did you choose to use that as the locus to sort of peer into this quite famous figure's mind? Uh, So uh, funnily enough, um, someone else actually gave me the idea or gave me that as an assignment. So an editor at the American version of Esquire magazine reached out and this was in early 2016, you know, probably about nine months before the presidential election and said, would you like to write a story from the perspective of Hillary Clinton on the eve of accepting the the nomination, the Democratic nomination? Um, and and I thought I sort of thought about it. And and the funny thing was that because I had written American Wife, the Laura Bush novel, I had been invited to write essays about Hillary Clinton, and I would decline because I didn't think I had anything 
sort of urgent or original to say about her. Like she's just been written about so much that to have an original thought about Hillary Clinton is challenging. But weirdly, I thought, you know, fiction gives me this opportunity to, to explore her. And, and in a lot of ways, what I think that that story is, is not what does Hillary Clinton look like to us, but what do we look like to Hillary Clinton? And I don't know if you know this, I actually have just written a novel from the perspective of Hillary Clinton. Um, that's you know it'll probably come out in in twenty twenty, but I've just finished it last week. If it is anything like that short story, I will be absolutely getting my hands on it because it's really <laughs> fantastic. And I think, look, regardless of where uh, you fall in terms of how you feel about Hillary Clinton, and you've certainly played with that idea, the journalist in question clearly doesn't, you know, come out as a supporter of this uh, candidate. I think what you've given her is this this incredibly arch voice that, uh, you know, makes us ask questions about our own motivations, uh, what we project on these public figures. Yeah, I, I, which I think we do. I mean, so many of the conversations that I think, you know, sort of, quote, unquote, regular people have about celebrities, I think really reflects more about the regular people than about the celebrities. Absolutely. If you just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and I'm just talking to author Curtis Sittenfeld about her latest book, You Think It, I'll Say It. Curtis, I'd love to talk a little bit about uh, what you will be doing at Broadside Festival, which is, I'm going to be honest, to anyone who hasn't gotten tickets yet, Really, you are going to be hard-pressed to get tickets to any events, but check out the Wheeler Centre website to find out. But, Curtis, what events will you be doing at the upcoming festival? By the way, I think there might be some tickets left over, depending on the event, though. Um, So I am, on Saturday, I'm participating in a panel, um, and which with four other, I think three, three other sort of writer, editor, um, and a, a moderator in addition. Um, and we're talking about sort of some of the questions are like, like one of the underlying questions of the panel is who gives you permission to write or do you, or to, to sort of, you know, speak out, do you give permission to yourself? And so talking about those sorts of questions, um, and it, Michelle Law is the moderator and sent me a sneak preview of the questions, which, spoiler alert, they're, they're very intelligent and nuanced. And then there's also, there's a huge event on Saturday night where I think there's like maybe 10 or 12 people. And we're all doing very brief, you know, songs or presentations on um, what my mother never told me. <laughs> I will definitely be at that event. It looks amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, I can't wait to hear other people's. Absolutely. Now, I, I do want to come a little bit, uh, come back a little bit to your, uh, you know, growing sort of fame as a author who fictionalizes political and public figures. Uh, and you have been asked in another interview whether you know you would ever write something about Melania Trump, and I thought your your answer was fairly revealing. Huh. Uh, I'm not sure. I have to say, I'm not completely sure what my answer was because I I think I've been asked more than once, but I I know what I think. Should I should I say I absolutely just share what you think <laughs> in the moment? Well, I mean, so the, this this sounds a little bit like a joke, but it's actually very sincere that um, to write from the perspective of Melania Trump would be to to sort of spend a lot of time imagining what it's like to be married to Donald Trump, which is not something that I would voluntarily choose to do. Like I consider myself so lucky that I can, I can choose the subjects that I write about. And, you know, Trump looms so large in, 
and quite in such literally a, and metaphorically. Yeah, yeah, in such a well, in such a sort of distressing way for so many Americans that I just I feel like I don't want to give. I mean, actually, there are some parts of Trump in the the novel that I just wrote, the the sort of alternate um, Hillary Clinton book, but which is so. Just the the premise of that is in real life. Um, Hillary Clinton turned down Bill Clinton's proposals twice before she, or, you know, Hillary Rodham turned down Bill Clinton's proposals twice before she accepted his third proposal. And the premise of my book is what if she had turned down the third proposal too and gone her own way? So there actually is a fleeting. So it's it's a little bit um, disingenuous to say like, why would anyone, you know, choose to spend their, their fictional time, like sharing their brain with Donald Trump? And I have a little bit, but, but, um, it's not I just wouldn't choose to inhabit that universe. And I also feel like I think I feel like uh, I would definitely prefer to write about characters, even if they're based on real people, where I feel some sympathy or, you know, ability to identify with them. And Melania Trump um, is not someone I'm not I'm not saying that she I mean, I, it's not. I'm, I'm not saying it's impossible for one to feel sympathy or for one to identify, but I would say that those are not things that, like, I strongly feel at all. It's also this idea, I guess, of a sense of an internal life, which uh, she doesn't tend to to project. That she's not giving you very much to work with, whereas a lot of these other characters are really, you know, giving you traits that you can riff off. And yeah, I, think... I would say. I mean, again, I don't. I think that it would be maybe arrogant of me to say she doesn't have an internal life but even I mean you know one of the things she's very famous for is when she visited children who've been separated from their parents at the border and wore that you know that jacket that said I don't I don't really care to you and it's just like the thing that could make that a person feel okay doing that is I mean, that's that's extremely damning to me. Like that that gesture is just it's just not something that I think the overwhelming majority of people I've ever met in my entire life, I don't think could comfortably do that. So it's it's just sort of like that's not really the, yeah, the, the path into her brain is not really a path that I would choose to take. <laughs> it's a really interesting um, idea, isn't it? That of course you have to, as you've just said, spend your fictional brain time with people that, you know, maybe it is odious enough to spend your real, you know, <laughs> everyday lifetime yeah. with. Is that sort of a part of your, your choice, I guess, to, to follow down a particular road is because you are genuinely interested in maybe exploring that person or those ideas. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I feel like in the end, there's so much I can't control about how a book is received after publication. And so it's like, I certainly might as well enjoy it or find it engaging while I write it. Like, I, I think there are times when People think you can sort of game the system and and maybe write a book that's more commercial, which, again, there are certain subjects that seem more and less commercial. That's undeniable. But but I just feel like, um, you know, I I think really in terms of the quality of the writing, it's like if you can feel as a reader, if the writer feels invested and and sort of almost like obsessed with it, I think that you want the writer to feel obsessed because then it's kind of, it makes it more persuasive why the the reader should be interested. Absolutely. Now it's, a terrible question to ask <laughs> what someone's uh, influences are, 
But, you know, when you're dealing with writing that obviously is so evolved and, and you know, really unassailable in, in its craft, it is very tempting to compare it to other authors that you love. And uh, I think I made, I read this and immediately thought Laurie Moore, although uh, she does tend to be far more satirical in an open way, yours is kind of quite, uh, you know, gently sort of subtly woven into this, the fabric of the characters that you create. Were there writers that you sort of read a lot of when you were, you know, either crafting this book or that you kind of, you know, delved into, um, you know, in terms of influences when it came to putting together a collection of short stories? Uh, well, I, I mean, I, I started reading Laurie Moore in high school and college and was a great fan of hers. I would say my favorite writer in a sort of, you know, lifelong way is the Canadian writer, Alice Munro. I guess once she won the Nobel Prize, you don't have to say the Canadian, <laughs> like as if she's like this obscure, you know, acquired taste, the super internationally famous um, Alice Munro. Is, like, just, I just think that her characters have this emotional richness and her plots are really complicated. And, you know, sometimes you, I don't think this is actually true of my stories, but I think with her stories, sometimes it's, you don't quite know what's going on until you get to the end of the story and then you can reread it. And, and there's just, there's, there's such a sort of density of like intelligence, even though it's not, it's not deliberately hard to understand. Um, But okay, wait, why is it terrible to ask someone who their influences are? I think, I feel like it can be a somewhat reductive exercise, isn't it? In in this idea of, you know, I guess we are, you know, like uh, we're creatures of what it is that we've, read but I'm always interested in how those things filter through people's brains and um, they're just part of what you know the fabric of what makes us isn't it yeah yeah no I mean I I think I I feel like I I read a variety of you know fiction non-fiction and and I don't I don't think I'm necessarily consciously influenced by other writers I mean I think I think I'm sure I am influenced by them and I think I am I have been influenced by Alice Munro in in big and small ways like again I've been a great fan of her since high school and even even like something she does is plays with time in a fascinating way not like she bends time or makes it sort of surreal but she makes these huge jumps of decades which highlights how interesting the passage of time is and how it's a a plot unto itself where, you know, in a person's life, if 15 years pass, whether a lot has changed or whether not very much at all has changed, it's fascinating somehow. Um, You know, it's it's like what happens with people that you grew up knowing and and kind of like no matter how they turned out, it's it's interesting to to see. This is, you know, even speaking to you now, this is a a kind of real feature of your writing that, that you have this level of profundity, but at, you know, that you can deploy it in a kind of conversational (laughs) way. (laughs) It's quite it's incredibly compelling and and there's such a lightness of touch that actually you know there is a lot of uh meditation on aging or meditation on uh you know i guess even things like uh, missed opportunities or uh you know there's one character in there who who never really connects with anyone but you sort of you know i I guess it's it's told in this uh in this incredibly sort of simple uh way and i think that you know that that's a really interesting um approach to things that you can delve into those things but but feel like you can take it in that that light fashion too was that something that you did uh naturally or was this uh part of the art 
No, I think, I mean, this might be a sort of strange way of answering, but um, I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And then before that, I lived in St. Louis, Missouri, both of which, you know, as you might know, are in the, the Midwest, um, which is, and, and Minneapolis is considered like, I think, a sort of interesting city. I would say most people, I mean, St. Louis is a, p- a perfectly pleasant place to live. It's not like a destination city where, um, and so I think that I I lead a sort of, like, you know, quote unquote, like ordinary life. And that I, I think that that influences, like, I, I think that in some ways I'm, I'm writing, like, some, sometimes writers are writing for other writers, which I think is, I mean, I appreciate that as a reader, because, because I am a writer. And, and I, but I think I'm kind of doing a few things where like, I feel like if there's a writer who's reading my work, there are certain, you know, craft like things that they may appreciate like what we're discussing but but also like i i understand that a lot of people who read my book including my sisters who are very intelligent might be people who read one or two or like six books a year they're not people who read a book a week and i i think i want my writing to feel interesting to them like to feel alive to feel worth their time and th- i think that there it does have to be interesting and it does have to be accessible it has to be both those things and if i if i sort of i mean the honest truth is i don't think i write incredibly poetic sentences but or i don't i'm not even sure i'm capable of writing incredibly poetic sentences but even if i could i don't think poetic sentences unto themselves are that interesting i think they have to be in the service of something else well i think you have certainly achieved uh you know both that level of readability and depth that you had hoped for uh and you know i would happily reread this book um, and also anything else that you write. Oh, thank so, you. Curtis uh, Sittenfeld, thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory. Thank you so much. That was Curtis Sittenfeld, the author of You Think It, I'll Say It and five other novels. Uh, she is out for the Broadside Festival on this weekend uh, as part of a Wheeler Centre event that is uh, apparently potentially still has a few tickets for some of the events please just immediately hop on the Wheeler Centre website and uh, find out if you can go along I definitely will be there that's pretty much it for Backstory today Uh, I would like to thank all my guests obviously Curtis Sittenfeld uh, and Jade Walsh who was the uh, who is the curator of Lo-Fi High an art and zine exhibition that is now on a Toot Art Space in St Kilda. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.